Well, good morning, everyone. So I've got one sibling in my family, a brother, and he kindly came along this morning to hear me talk. So he's um, been very supportive of me over the years, which I really appreciate. And just um, given that he was coming today, I was thinking to myself, you know what? What better opportunity than to share with all of you a story that involves him? <laughs> so, as you can imagine, there have been a number of stories involving my brother over the years that I can remember. A lot of um, um, those may be embarrassing stories, but I thought, look, he's come here to support me. I'm not going to tell one of those embarrassing stories. If you know my brother, you'll know that he's a very stoic person, and what that means is he's very resilient um, in, in challenging circumstances. So I thought I'd share with you this story that um, indicates just how stoic he is. Okay, so the context is this. We are travelling through Asia, and we're in transit um, in Singapore, waiting for a night flight to take us back home to Sydney. So whilst we're waiting in transit... We catch up with an uncle of ours for dinner, and we go have this fantastic dinner at an Indian restaurant. Great food, and the one small issue was that there were some nuts in some of the food that we ate, and well, it just so happens that my brother is allergic to nuts. So we have this dinner, we're at the airport, we're um, just waiting for this night flight, and my brother just casually mentions to me, oh, um, you know, my throat's starting to get a little bit itchy. So that didn't really concern us too much at that time because this is what happened over the years from time to time. And what we thought we'd do uh, would be just to go to the airport chemist, pick up some antihistamines off the shelf, all good, all sweet. But unbeknownst to us, what was actually happening was my brother was having this anaphylactic reaction. And if you know what that means it's uh, a very serious allergic reaction it's a life-threatening reaction and you need medical attention immediately so we were unaware of this we just kept on talking and why I'm sharing the story is just to share with you just the manner or the casual manner in which he, he raised the alarm so the conversation went you know something along the lines of oh you know that was a good dinner that we had with our uncle wasn't it by the way, I'm finding it really difficult to breathe right now. What movies do you reckon they'll show on the plane? <laughs> so it, it took me a little bit of time for me to click in my head what was actually happening. And then when it finally did, I realised that this wasn't just some mild reaction that could be dealt with with these off-the-shelf antihistamines. It was a medical emergency and we needed help straight away. So what we did after I realised was we ran throughout the airport looking for the airport doctor. We finally found him. He took one look at my brother. He gave him two injections of adrenaline and he told him to lie down on the patient bed to, to recover. So after he lay down for some time and he recovered, we'd actually um, missed our flight home and we had to stay the night overnight in, in the airport. Luckily, Singapore Airport, they have one of these mini 24-hour cinemas where we thought, oh, okay, we're going to wait it out, you know, over the, the night, right? Um, has anyone seen that movie, P.S. I Love You? I, um, we, we may have seen that at 3 a.m. in the morning. I, I may have cried during that, but I put that down to the adrenaline, you know, coursing through your, your veins and just that relief kind of thing. But um, the main thing was that my brother was now okay. He was, he was safe. 
So you may be wondering at this stage, that was an interesting story, but what on earth does it have to do with our passage today? Well, why I shared that story is because it actually has a lot of parallels with the passage that we'll be going through this morning. And um, it has a lot of parallels in terms of the awareness that we should have of our core nature. And I'm going to return to this story from time to time as we work through our passage. So whether you're uh, here and you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, when you take a look at yourself, you may be thinking one of two things. You may be thinking this. Yes, I know that there are a couple of areas in my life where I know that I do the wrong thing. But generally, I think I'm a pretty good person. Or you may be thinking this. I've got these areas in my life where I keep on doing things that I know I shouldn't be doing, but I'm really struggling to stop doing them. So which one of these are you? In our passage today, God's Word speaks to these two ways that we look at ourselves. Are you really a good person? How do you deal with the things that you're struggling to stop doing in your life? So, will you join me in prayer as we start to look at his word this morning? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the time that we have together this morning. Please help us put aside the distractions and the busyness of our lives just for a moment to focus on your word and what your word is telling us about our core condition and what we can do about it. Amen. So, this morning we're in the book of Romans and it's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman Church. So he wrote this letter to the Roman Church around AD 50. And at that time, the church was made up of Jewish Christians as well as non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. So you've got the Jewish people on the one hand. And if you're familiar with your, your Bible history, you know that the Jewish people, they're this special group of people that God has chosen to be a channel of blessing to everyone else in the world. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible, remember what God promised to Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, uh, in Genesis 22. He says to uh, Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then on the other hand, you've got everyone else, the, the Gentiles. So in the first few chapters of this letter, Paul writes about what Jesus' death on the cross and him being raised from the dead means now for both Jews and Gentiles alike. So were Jewish people, God's chosen people, still in a special or different position compared with the Gentiles? Earlier in chapter 3 of this letter, Paul says no. He says this in verses 22 and 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Well, let's fast forward now to chapter 7, which is our passage today. In our passage today, you can see that Paul now writes about this thing called the law that applied to the Jewish people and what its relevance is to both Jewish people and to Gentiles now. So firstly, what is the law? So Paul's referring here to the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. And what this was, was it was a set of commandments, commands that God had given to the Jewish people, his chosen people. So what it did was that it set the rules for his special relationship with him. 
and there were a lot of commands. There were 365 negative commands and 248 positive for a total of, so who's good at maths here? Anyone? Well, I'm not, I had to write it down. So <laughs> 613 commands in total. Thankfully though, Paul says that now because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, these laws no longer apply. So earlier in chapter 7, in verse 6, Paul says that by trusting in Jesus, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit. So fantastic. Jesus has done away with these laws, so they're not relevant to anyone anymore. We can have an early mark and enjoy the wonderful winter day we have today. No, that's not right. So the law still serves an important purpose, and we're now at point one, if you're following on your outlines this morning. So what's the purpose of the law for us? Its purpose is this. The law makes us firstly aware of what sin is. Let's um, have a reread of verse 7. It says this, if you've got your Bibles open. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, and let's have a listen to this, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So if if you remember, you shall not covet, or um, in other words, desire something to make you happy above God making you happy, is one of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments form part of the law. So what Paul's saying here is that the law provides this clear marker for us in terms of what's right and what's wrong. The law makes us aware of what sin is in the first place. And so what is sin? If we keep on focusing on the Ten Commandments, then they can really be summarized like this. We're called to trust in God above all other things, and that's what we've been created and what we've been designed to do. But what sin is, however, is us turning away from trusting in God to trust in ourselves instead. So it's us turning away from God, turning away from trusting in God, and turning to trust in ourselves. So I remember one time when I travelled down to my Melbourne office for for work. I got in after taking the flight down and the, the taxi from the airport, and I found the first available... Um, desk that was available and I sat myself down at this desk and I saw one of his, um, this colleague that I knew and then my colleague came up and the first thing was, my colleague looked at me and said, you're in breach of our policy and then the first thing that came over me was this sense of guilt and you're just like, oh, what, what have I done, right? And then you think, wait a minute, I've just gotten here, I haven't even had time to be in breach of nothing. But what had actually turned out was, um, what I'd done was I'd put my jacket on um, my, my chair when I, when I got in, and that was in breach of our OHS policy. And why that was is because if you hang up your jacket on, your, on the back of your chair, then it can fall off and it can get caught up in the, the wheels of the swivel chair, and then that can cause a hazard. And then, you know, there have been injuries, believe it or not, through this sort of stuff. So there was a new OHS policy, and then this is one of the things that you could not do. So until my colleague called out this new OHS policy, I was totally ignorant of the fact that I was doing something wrong. So 
in the same way Paul's saying here in verse 7 that the law makes us aware firstly of what sin is, what's right and wrong. And um, as we've just mentioned, it's us turning away from trusting in God to trusting in ourselves. But Paul goes further than this to say that the law not only makes us aware of what sin is in the first place, but it also makes us aware that all of us are sinful. So, earlier in um, chapter 3, in verse 19, Paul says this, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. What Paul's saying here is that even though the law only applied to the Jewish people, what it does is that it shows us what's right and what's wrong, so that it applies to everyone. And because of that, it shows us that all of us have done the wrong thing. You see, all of us have turned away from God, and instead we've turned to trusting in ourselves. But then Paul goes on to say that the Lord does even more than make us aware of what sin is, and the fact that all of us are sinful. And I'm now at point two, if you're following on your outlines this morning. So in the next verse, in verse 8, he says this, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. What's he saying here? He's saying that not only does the law make clear to us what sin is, but it actually reveals to us that we have a sinful nature. So I'm going to repeat this again. Not only does the law make clear to us what sin is, but it also reveals to us that we have a sinful nature. And what is this sinful nature? It's more than just doing the wrong thing from from time to time involves us actively wanting to sin or trust in ourselves, involves us actively wanting to find ways to trust in ourselves at every opportunity. So for some of us here, I imagine you would have been to Asia before. One of the things that I like uh, when I go to Asia is seeing all of the, the random signage that's up or the you know very poorly written English and some of the funny things that um, you know, you can go onto the internet and find a whole host of these types of examples. So, one time I was in Malaysia and I went into a bathroom there and there was this sign there, it was quite a large sign and it was showing you and telling you and then having pictures in terms of all the different things that you should not be doing whilst you're in this bathroom. So it was quite a big sort of poster and um, there were some of the standard things that were just there, um, like only put used toilet paper in the toilet, um, which you know, obviously that's you know, you're pretty familiar with. But then there were some more unusual ones, and there were a couple of unusual ones which caught my eye. So one was no washing your vegetables in the sink basin. And I thought, okay. Um, but the most unusual one was no washing your feet in the sink basin. So until I'd seen that sign, I would have never thought of doing either of those things. But then after seeing that sign, I just could not stop thinking about doing the very things it was saying that I should not be doing. I mean, surely you've got to wash your veggies first before washing your feet, isn't that right? (laughs) But so in a similar way, what Paul's saying here in verse 8 is that even after knowing what's right 
and what's wrong, what the law does is that it shows us our sinful nature in that we actively seek out ways of doing what we shouldn't be doing, which is trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in God. Now, you may be here thinking, no, I'm not like that. I consider myself generally to be a good person, and I'm now at point 2A of your outlines if you're following this morning. But let's take an honest look at ourselves. What are the things that we do when no one else is watching So what are the things that we do when we're on our smartphones or watching the TV alone or alone with our boyfriend or girlfriend? What are the secret thoughts and feelings that go through our heads from time to time? Let's be reminded of all those times where we do things or we're tempted to do things that we know that we shouldn't be doing. You see, without knowing the law, you can go about your your day-to-day life, being ignorant of your sinful nature. And this is what Paul means when he says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. But now being aware of the law, all of us are now guilty because of our sin. In verse 9, he says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. So what Paul says is that there's nothing wrong with the law itself. It's our sin that's the problem. In verses 10 to 12, he says this. He says, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What the law does is that it establishes all of our guilt. The punishment for which, as we can see, is death. So whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian here, many of us here are very good at downplaying the extent of our sin, aren't we? We say, yes, I know I do the wrong things from time to time. I may tell the occasional white lie. I may engage in lust on occasion. I may have these hidden feelings of being jealous of someone's career or material possessions. But generally, I think I'm a good person. Now, what God's Word is telling us this morning is that these things are just the the tip of the iceberg, just the visible signs of something much deeper within. Just like my brother having his nut allergy, what God's Word is telling us here is that we have a condition that goes right down to our core fundamental being. That condition is our sinful nature that's ever-present in the background. And not only do we sin from time to time, but our nature actively seeks out ways to trust in ourselves and not in God. And just like my brother's condition being a life-threatening condition, our sinful nature is also life-threatening in that the due punishment for it is death. But on the other hand, you may be a person who's fully aware of your faults, that you do things you know are wrong. You want to stop doing these things, but keep on doing them. I'm now at point 2B for those who are following on your outlines. So let's listen to what Paul says from verse 14 through to verse 23. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I'm going to ask, can you relate to this? Do you continue to do things that you don't want to do, that you know aren't right? Having been a Christian for a number of years, this is the thing that I can really relate to myself. We continue to act on our anger, we continue to lust, we continue to be jealous and want what other people have. We continue to trust in ourselves. But given what Paul has told us earlier about our core nature being sinful, however, we shouldn't really be surprised at this. Again, what we need to realise is that these things we do, that we know are wrong, but are just a window into our core problem, which is our sinful nature. So just like my brother and I needed to recognise that he was having this anaphylactic reaction to nuts and that antihistamines would do absolutely nothing to cure him, We need to recognise that our problem goes right down to our core and fixing certain behaviours of ours, just these external superficial things, they won't deal with this underlying problem of our sinful nature, which is a life-threatening condition. And what we need to realise is that this core problem of our sinful nature is not something that we can fix by ourselves using our own efforts. So I'm going to repeat this, this core problem of our sinful nature, it's not something that we can fix by ourselves using our own efforts. In verse 14, we can see that Paul says we are slaves to sin, and in verse 23, he says that we're prisoners to sin. I mean, they're such appropriate images, aren't they? What they really convey is the fact that we're held captive to our sinful nature. We can't get out and we need someone to set us free. As we move to point three of our outlines, Paul really conveys in verse 24 our helplessness in dealing with our sinful nature. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he points to our one hope, our rescuer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, it's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone who's able to deal with our fundamental core problem of our sinful nature. So how does Jesus deliver, or in other words, save us from our sinful nature? What he does is he takes the punishment of death that we all deserve for our sin. He takes it upon himself, and he dies in our place. And this is purely by God's grace. What this means is that it's his free gift. It's got nothing at all to do with ourselves and our own efforts and what we deserve. So by Jesus dying on our place, what happens is we're justified, which means that we're declared innocent before God. Just like my brother having to get a doctor to help him when he was having his anaphylactic reaction, We too, we need someone external to help us. 
And like the adrenaline shots that he received, we too need something appropriate to deal with this core problem of ours, this life-threatening condition of, of sin that we have. But what Jesus' sacrifice does it's, is that it's even better than just one shot of adrenaline to deal with one instance of an allergic reaction. So earlier, Johnny read out this wonderful passage, which is Romans um, chapter 8, the very next chapter, and it starts off with the words that he read, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what no condemnation means is that Jesus' death on the cross is all-sufficient in that by that one act, he takes the punishment that we all deserve for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And for those of us who trust in his sacrifice on the cross, our status is forever changed from being guilty to being innocent. So you may be a Christian here, and you may be thinking, yes, I I know all this, but why do I still struggle with sin? And Maybe you're already familiar with the book of Romans, and you may be thinking, wait a minute, isn't this passage in Romans 7 um, inconsistent with Romans 6, which says that because of Jesus, we're no longer slaves to sin? Isn't Paul being um, inconsistent? Isn't he contradicting himself here? Well, no, Paul's not contradicting himself here. What he's referring to in this passage is this now and not yet status that Christians have We now have been declared innocent because of Jesus, but yet we still have a sinful nature and will only be fully dealt with. This is only going to be fully dealt with when we meet Jesus face to face. Has anyone watched that TV um, series, which um, I forget what the name is now, Um, the one where um, you've got this um, person who's this... um, He's, uh, held, he's a soldier, and then he's held um, captive by Al-Qaeda, and he's released. Is anyone... I remember it now. It's called Homeland. Has anyone watched Homeland? I don't know if it's still on, um, but I watched it a long time ago when I had a lot more time on my hands. So you've got this soldier. He's been held captive in Iraq by Al-Qaeda for the last eight years, and um, he's released from captivity, and he's brought back uh, to America, where he originally was from. And in, in season one, one of the early episodes, you've got this scene of him coming back to his family home and he's, um, he's sleeping at night. So he's back in his family bedroom and he's trying to sleep on the bed. But then he gets up. He can't sleep on the bed. And then what he does is that he goes and he lies down on the floor and only when he lies down on the floor can he sleep. And why was that? Um, It's because he was used to sleeping on the floor for the last eight years. And then even though he had all of these comforts and all the luxuries of being back in America in his family home, it was something that he he just couldn't do. And I think this is what Paul is referring to here in terms of this now and not yet status that Christians have. So uh, in terms of our status... We're declared as, as innocent, no longer guilty, but then you still have this sinful nature within you. You may still act as if you are still a captive. Just looking at verses 22 and 23, he says this, and I think it sums this up very well. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Okay, so we know that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is all-sufficient in that if you trust in Him, your status before God is changed from guilty to innocent. But how does Christ's sacrifice help us to deal with our sin in the everyday? So for those following on your outlines, I'm now at point 3A. Firstly, what Christ's death on the cross does is that it enables us to admit to our failings. For those of us who think, yes, I do the wrong thing from time to time, but I'm generally a good person, it allows us to take an honest, hard and deep look at ourselves. And when we do that, we stop trying to justify or brush away our occasional lust, our anger, our jealousy. We see that these things are just the visible signs of what's within, which is our sinful nature. Okay, but some of you may be thinking at this point, why on earth would I want to do that? I'd rather not be aware of the extent of my sinful nature, thank you very much. You know, my life's pretty good as is, nothing's wrong. Why would I want to actually look deep into who I am as a, as a person? Uh, it's, it's like in that movie, The Matrix. Who's seen that classic movie, The Matrix? Do you guys not watch TV? Or, okay, okay, good, right? Um, Fun fact, uh, did anyone know that The Matrix came out in 1999, so almost 20 years ago? That's making me feel very old because I'm still thinking it's one of these current movies, right? But um, it's like when Morpheus tells Neo, you remember that scene, he says, you can uh, take the blue pill, which is take it and then continue with your life as is, or you can take the red pill, and what the red pill does is that it fully shows you things as they truly are. So, in the same way, some of you may be thinking, I'd rather take the blue pill, thank you very much. My life is pretty good at the moment, and I'd rather be unaware of my true sinful nature. And you may be thinking, I don't want to take the red pill to see my my true nature as I am. Well, I'd like to say two things in response to this. So, firstly, as we saw earlier, God's Word tells us that there is a consequence for those of us who turn away from trusting in God. And that consequence is death. By admitting to God our sinful nature, trusting in Jesus' death on the cross as taking the punishment that we deserve and turning back to trusting in God, death is something that no longer hangs over us. I mean, this is the incredible thing. We don't need to do anything to defeat death because Christ has done everything. Jesus has done everything already on the cross. And all we all we'd need to do is to trust that he's died for us and turn back and trust in him. When we're able to admit to our sinful nature and turn back to trust in God, um, a second thing happens, and this thing is really wonderful, and it's this. No longer are we burdened by having to cover up our failings. We can find true rest. No longer do we have to do this tiring work of having to constantly prove ourselves, to prove that we have worth. If we don't address our core condition of sin, the work that we need to do to prove ourselves is never-ending, and we need more and more and more. So 
will continue to need that bigger house, that promotion, better grades, a better looking body. It never ends. How do we get this rest? Well, we get it by coming before God each day, dependent and vulnerable, acknowledging our failings, trusting in his sacrifice on the cross, and asking him to change us. You know, if you're here today exploring Christianity and you want to know more about this true rest that we get in Jesus, what I'd like to do is encourage you, continue to come to church, have a talk to the person who invited you here, have a talk to our pastors, our elders, our deacons. And as was mentioned earlier, we're going to be having um, this series of fresh suppers that start in August and they'll continue for the next five weeks in August and September, um, feel free to turn up to just one of these. They're a fantastic opportunity, as you would have seen from the video, just to ask the questions that you have in this informal setting. So I'd really encourage you to think about going to at least one of these suppers, if you can make it. So God's Word this morning, it, it also speaks to those of us who are fully aware of our failings, who are trying to turn away from our sin, but we're struggling to do so. And I'm now at the final point, which is point 3B of your outlines. You know, if you're someone who can identify with this, like myself, perhaps you need to firstly change your mindset to your sin. Perhaps you've been seeing your failings as just minor behavioural things that you can fix with your own efforts, rather than what they actually are windows into your core sinful nature that only Jesus can fix. So for someone like myself who's been a Christian for a number of years, then there is this tendency for um, me to go, oh, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm a good person now, and then therefore all these sort of behavioural things that I've got, I can fix it using my own efforts. But what this passage this morning reminds us of is even after becoming a Christian, even after trusting Christ, you still remain sinful. There's still nothing that's good about you at all. And you continue needing Jesus every single day of your lives. So, once you realize that you've got to have this mindset change, then what you're going to do is you're going to stop using your own efforts to, um, to deal with your sin. And you're going to come to Jesus each day totally dependent on him. But, okay, so when we trust in Jesus, do we just not do anything ourselves? Do we just go, you know, trust and then that's it? What is, like, what's the role for ourselves? What Jesus tells us is that there is still a role for ourselves in dealing with our own sin. And as some of you may know, in Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus tells us is, is what? He says that we should cut off our own sin. And what this means is that we should be proactive about dealing with sin in our lives. We should give this cutting off priority in our lives. You know, it's really easy just for you to go about your day-to-day life and go, oh, I've just fallen into that pattern of sin yet again uh, today. But what Jesus calls us to do is, he says, the very first thing we should do each day is to ask ourselves, what are the areas in my life where I know that I fail. What can I do to cut off this sin in my life? You know, there may be things you can do in advance 
like not put yourself in a position where you're tempted uh, to sin. So you um, can decide in advance, I'm not going to visit those websites or I'm not going to spend time alone with certain people. But also we should prepare ourselves for other situations where we know we can't avoid and we may be tempted to sin. So perhaps that person at school or uni with the better looks and grades and clothes, they make us jealous of them. Perhaps your eyes tend to turn to lust when you're at the gym. We should recognise all these occasions where we may be tempted to sin and we should prepare ourselves in advance by telling ourselves that we're going to turn to Jesus when we are tempted, that Jesus is all that we need and we're going to ask Jesus to keep us focused on him when we are tempted. So the final point that I'd like to make is for those of us who do recognise the seriousness of our sin, who do trust in Jesus, but still struggle with sin from time to time. What God's Word tells you here in this passage this morning is this, don't despair. You know, the very fact that Paul's struggle with his own sin is included here in God's Word means that God is actually fully aware that despite turning to trust in Christ, our nature remains sinful and will continue to fail at times. So he included this passage for our comfort. What our failings serve to do is that they turn us again and again to focus on the cross of Christ, to make us appreciate more and more that by that one act, all of our sins, past, present and future, were taken care of. And this was done purely because of Jesus' love for us. It doesn't depend at all on our own efforts. It's already been bought for us, and all we need to do is to turn to trust in that. In Romans 8, we see this other incredible thing that happens to us when we turn to trust in Christ. Remember what chapter 8, verse 1 says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what we get when we trust in Jesus is we get His Spirit the Holy Spirit living in us. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He works within us to sanctify us. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit changes us more and more, to be more and more like Christ. Now, you may not see the day-to-day work of the Spirit, but for those of us who are regulars here, why don't you take a look back at who you were a number of years ago and see how God has been changing you to the person that you are today. So a number of years ago, I did this boot camp. Who's done a boot camp here before? Anyone? So we're not very fit. We don't watch a lot of TV or movies. That's the moral of the story today. All right, so I went to a boot camp. It was the only one time I did a boot camp. I've never done a boot camp since then. And what they did was that they started you off firstly, by getting you to do a fitness test. And I got some poor result at this fitness test. And this program, this boot camp program, was very good because every week you had to do something different. So it felt like you were always struggling, you were never improving. But at the end of this program, what happened was that they got you to do exactly the same fitness test. And you could see that your fitness had exponentially improved over those few weeks. So... In the same way, God's Spirit may be doing this bit-by-bit work 
in our lives day by day, leading us to trust in Jesus more and more and making us more and more like Jesus each day. So I'm going to be asking the music team to come up now. And as I do that, I'd like to close now by inviting all of us to, um, to come before God in prayer. Maybe you're someone who's thought that you're a good person overall, but you're tired of having to prove yourself over and over again. Do you want to be freed from this never-ending cycle of more and more and more? Do you want to find true rest in Jesus? So God calls you to turn to Him now and find that rest in Him. Or perhaps you're someone who's trusted in Jesus for a while, like myself, but are struggling to deal with sin in your life. Could it be that you're using your own efforts to deal with your sin rather than appreciating that your sin is something deep within, it's your sinful nature that only Jesus can deal with? Or are you weighed down by despair, trying to deal with ongoing sin in your life? Again, God calls you to find comfort in Him, in the all-sufficient work of Jesus on the cross to deal once and for all with our sin. So God calls you to trust in the work of His Spirit living in you to make you more like Jesus. So can I invite all of us to come before God now in prayer? Father God, we just marvel at your great love for us that's displayed on the cross. You, you saw us in our helpless, our sinful state, doomed to your just punishment of death. And yet instead of giving us what we deserved, you gave us what was most precious to you, your son Jesus, who died in our place to free us from our sin. We just want to thank you for the rest that Jesus alone provides for us. And Father God, we ask that you please help us to turn again and again back to Jesus. Please do the work by your Spirit of changing us each day to be more and more like him until that work is completed when we meet him face to face. Amen. Amen.他是一个非常传奇的人物他在秦朝的时候我们知道历史的这个朝代更替秦朝然后变成汉朝他在秦朝的时候呢他的官职是四水亭长相当于今天我们的一个乡镇派出所的所长那知道这个级别其实是非常
和刘邦一起打天下的那些功臣们呢，尤其是他的那些老乡，本来你是可想而知，他们都是农民，没有什么文化的，非常的没有约束力，所以在宴会上面，这个武将们喝醉了以后啊，那是，呃，各种各样的场面都有了，他们谈过去的打仗的事情，每个都很精神，讲着讲着开始就就吵了，因为有些时候可能讲的不高兴了，就开始吵架。拿着刀剑，然后呢，大呼小叫的。这皇帝在上面，他也觉得说这样也不行啊，这些兄弟太没有体统了，太没有礼貌，对不对？但是他又不知道怎么样约束。这个时候呢，有一个他手下有一个大臣，他是一个儒家的一个博士啊，他的名字叫苏孙通。他呢就看出了这个皇帝在上面这个脸色，他知道他的心思，他就对他说：“我给你提个建议。”我帮助你来制定一个朝廷礼仪，但是呢，又不像朝秦朝那样繁琐的。那这个刘邦就说：“好啊，你去吧。”后来这个苏孙通他就根据夏商周的，还有秦朝的这些朝廷礼仪，然后制定了一套比较简洁的礼仪给刘邦。礼仪制定好了以后，刘邦就对他的大臣说：“啊，你们去跟着苏孙通去排练，排练一个月。”一个月回来以后，大臣都熟悉了。然后到了汉高祖七年的元旦，长乐宫，这刘邦造了一个大宫殿，叫长乐宫。这长乐宫殿上面布置好了，然后大家都开始整齐的仪仗队。上朝时间呢，群臣就按照这个官衔的大小，然后进来，各就各位。苏孙通就指挥他们，然后大臣们就是面朝皇帝，俯伏。起立行礼，就坐，大家都很恭敬。然后，在这个皇帝，他就坐在高高的宝座上面，他看到这些平日里不可一世的武将们，个个非常的认真，毕恭毕敬。从前这个朝堂是乱哄哄的，现在呢，非常的有次序，他心里非常高兴，他非常得意，他不自觉的就讲了一句话，他说：“我今天才知道。”皇帝的尊贵，他原文这样说的：“吾乃今日之为皇帝之贵也。”尊贵是一个抽象名词，让人觉得说你好像知道他的意思，你好像又不知道他的意思。什么是尊贵？你好像知道，好像不知道。那为什么这样呢？因为我们没有经历过，我没有做过皇帝，不知道说怎么样叫做皇帝的尊贵。连贵为天子的汉高祖刘邦，他也是在群臣经过这个庄严肃穆的朝廷礼仪后，他才能够更深的体会皇帝的尊贵。我们今天要讲的一个词，荣耀，荣耀也是一个抽象名词，如果没有经历过，很难给它下定义。什么叫荣耀？但是“荣耀”这个词在旧约和新约的圣经里面常常的出现，在旧约圣经中间。这个词出现的时候，往往和神联系在一起。比方讲，《出埃及记》二十四章这样说：“摩西上到山上，有云彩把山遮盖着，耶和华的荣耀停在西奈山上，云彩把山遮盖了六天。第七天，耶和华从云彩中呼唤摩西，耶和华荣耀的景象在以色列人眼前，好像在山顶上出现烈火。”当时西乃山上有云彩，又像烈火。这不是一个自然的现象。
摩西说：“这是神的荣耀显现在以色列人面前，非常的可怕。”后来在以西结先知里面，先知也描述了神的荣耀。以西结这样说：“在他们这个他们指的是基路伯天使，一种特别的天使，在他们头顶的穹苍上面有宝座的形状，好像蓝宝石的样子。有一个宝座，好像蓝宝石，但肯定不是真的蓝宝石，好像蓝宝石。”在宝座的形象上面有一个样子像人的形象，我看见那仿佛是他腰部以上，好像闪耀的金属，又好像有火四面包围，在他在那仿佛是他腰部以下，我又看见好像有火，光芒环绕着他，下雨的日子云中彩虹的样子怎样，环绕他的光芒的样子也怎样，这就是耶和华荣耀的形状的样子，我一看见就伏伏在地上。跟着听见有说话的声音，先知他看见了神的荣耀，他没有说他看见神，他说他看见神的荣耀，神的荣耀像火，又像有光芒，有彩虹一样的光芒。具体是什么？你大概你只能猜想，你只能用你的想象力去想说这个荣耀什么样子。有一点，先知他看见了这个荣耀以后，他立刻伏伏在地上。对于我们来说，虽然。圣经里面先知他的描述的时候，他尽量的是描述的很具体、很形象。但是因为我们没有经历过，我们无法具体知道神的荣耀。不过这些描述，让我有一点给我们可以知道的：神的荣耀一定非常的可怕。在旧约的时代，神并不常常的彰显他的荣耀，他不是常常彰显的，而且神从来不完全彰显他的荣耀。第一个，他不常常彰显。不是说总是给你看他的荣耀。第二个，他如果彰显他的荣耀，他也不是完全彰显他的荣耀。摩西有一次对神祷告，这样说：“求你让我看看你的荣耀。”这是他向神的祷告。他说：“求你让我看看你的荣耀。”神就对他说：“你不能看我的脸，因为没有人看见了我还能活着。我要把你放在磐石的缝隙中间。”有一块磐石，我把你放在一个磐石的缝隙中间。我的荣耀经过的时候，我要用我的手掌遮盖你，直到我过去了。然后我要收回我的手掌，然后我过去了，我要收回我的手掌，你就会看见我的背，却不能看见我的脸。在这里面，摩西他说对神说：“你求你让我看看你的荣耀。”然后神说：“我给你看一点，你看我的背，你不能看我的脸，也就是脸。”摩西他也不能完全看见神的荣耀。其实旧约圣经是主题，就是告诉我们，耶和华神大有荣耀。正因为他大有荣耀，人不能亲眼看见他的荣耀。因为他大有荣耀，所以你不能亲眼看见他的荣耀。原因，圣经一次一次告诉我们，原因在于人的罪恶。也为了这个原因，耶稣基督才降世为人，为我们死，又从死里复活。所以，因为神的荣耀，人不能亲眼看见他。耶稣基督来，他就是要为解决这个问题。许多信经这样说，我们上一次讲到许多信经第六条，讲到耶稣基督升天，坐在全能父上帝的右边。在这里面，耶稣基督升天是讲到耶稣基督他作为人，他不是讲到他作为神进入神的荣耀，而是说他作为人，他坐在了全能父上帝的右边。他本来就是神，所以作为神性来说，他坐在神的右边不是稀奇的事情。但是他作为人进入了神的荣耀
，耶稣基督有神性又有人性，作为神，他进入神的荣耀并不稀奇的，他作为人进入神的荣耀却是一件意义深远的事情，因为他进入了神的荣耀，所以那些信靠他的人就有了进入神荣耀的盼望。在保罗帖撒罗尼迦后书的第二章十三节这样说：“主所爱的弟兄们。”我们应该常常为你们感谢神，因为他从起初就拣选了你们，借着圣灵成圣的工作和你们对真道的信心，使你们可以得救。因此，神借着我们所传的福音呼召你们，使你们得着我们主耶稣基督的荣耀。所以在这里面，保罗告诉我们，我们这些相信他的人，神借着福音来呼召我们，使我们能够得着。主耶稣基督的荣耀，主耶稣基督的荣耀是什么样的荣耀？就是他进入了神的荣耀的那一种荣耀。主耶稣进入了神的荣耀，我们是现在盼望分享他的荣耀，这要等到复活的时候。所以，刚才我们所读的经文《哥林多前书》里面十五说这样说：基督已经从死人中复活，成了睡了的人出熟的果子。他是第一个从死里复活的人。死既借着一人而来，死人复活也借着一人而来。在亚当里，众人都死了，照样在基督里，众人也都要复活。然后在这里面说，死亡是借着一个人而来的，就是亚当。在亚当里，众人都要死。死亡意味着什么？死亡意味着与神隔绝。死亡就是你不能进入神的荣耀。你跟神隔绝了，所以你不能进入神的荣耀。复活，借着一人而来，就是基督。在基督里面，众人都要复活。信徒的复活意味着他们要进入神的荣耀。但是我们现在还没有看见这荣耀，我们还没有看见这荣耀，只是在信心中间盼望这个荣耀。所以我们讲到的题目叫“荣耀的盼望”。荣耀的盼望就是盼望那将来的荣耀。我们还没有看见，在信心中间盼望这个荣耀。信徒对神的荣耀的盼望，只有当基督再来的时候才会实现。你现在盼望这个荣耀，这个荣耀什么时候实现？只有当基督再来、信徒复活的时候才会实现。现在我们还没有亲眼看到。只有对神的信心，让我们相信说将来。一定能够看到这样的荣耀。如果你不相信，你不会以为这是真的。如果我们相信，我们还要警醒祷告，需要让自己不要因为这世界上的思虑、烦恼、诱惑而忽视了、忘记了这个荣耀的盼望。所以，这个盼望在前面，只有相信的人。他才相信说，我将来会有得到这种荣耀。对于那些相信的人，圣经还是要教导他们说，不要因为世界上的东西，你忽视了或者忘记了这个荣耀的盼望。所以在圣经里面，保罗在以佛所书这样说：“求我们主耶稣基督的神，荣耀的父，他描绘神，描绘神为荣耀的父。”赐给你们智慧和启示的灵，使你们充分的认识他，并且使你们心灵的眼睛明亮，可以知道他的呼召有怎么样的指望
他基业的荣耀在圣徒中是多么的丰盛。保罗他为什么要为信徒这样的祷告？他说：“让我们知道说神的呼召有怎样的盼望。这个盼望就是讲到神将来给我们的那个荣耀。这个荣耀一定得需要神来帮助明白的。我刚才说过，因为这些是我们没有经历过的。”尊贵是什么？不知道。荣耀是什么？也不知道。我们所知道的，无非就是圣经中间用文字对我们的描述。这些文字的描述，需要在我们里面产生一种真正的想象也好，确信也好，这都需要圣灵的工作。所以保罗在这里祈求神，让我们知道他的呼召有怎么样的盼望。所以在这里。如果说一个信徒他没有复活的盼望，假设你说我是一个我相信耶稣基督，但是你没有一个复活的盼望，你没有对神的荣耀的盼望，也许，也许你还算不上一个真正意义上的信徒。为什么呢？因为圣经的旧约和新约都在指向这一个盼望，旧约和新约都在指向这个盼望。都在指向这个盼望。你说我相信耶稣基督，但是我不相信这个。我那就讲一个讲一个故事。呃，有一个有一个弟兄，他有个母亲，啊，当然每个人都有母亲。他的他的妈妈呢，呃，他给他传福音，啊、呃，他和妈妈他信说我也相信了，但是呢，妈妈从来不相信复活的事情。他跟儿子说，呃。死就死了呗，呃，死就死了嘛，还还有什么呀？哪里有这些事情啊？说，呃，然后有一有一天，有一天他妈妈突然就断气了。他断气了以后呢，这个儿子他也不知道怎么办。他有他有执着的祷告的精神，他就呃，反正打电话给很多的人，跟他们说妈妈断气了，然后没没气了。但是呢，我也不知道他到底有没有得救。然后，他就一一群的弟兄姊妹和他自己，啊、呃，他一共在他妈妈的身边祷告了八个小时。然后妈，他妈妈这个呃，后来在八个小时以后，突然之间这个气回过来了。回过来了以后，然后从此以后，他妈妈再也不说了，从来再也不跟他说有没有那回事了。在在那一次断气以前，他总是说，他儿子跟他说，我们以后会有。会有复活，他总是跟他说：“儿子，你不要瞎说了，这个谁谁知道有这回事呢？”但是那一次经历以后，他妈妈再也不说了。那我相信说，他妈妈在这一次的经历以后，一定经历一些什么东西。他知道说，灵魂是很真实的。在创世纪一章二十六节、二十七节、二十八节这样说：“神说，我们要照着我们的形象，按照我们的样式。”使他们管理海里的鱼、空中的鸟、地上的牲畜，以及全地和地上所有爬行的生物。所以神说：“我我们造人，要按照我们的形象样式造人，使他们管理鱼、鸟、牲畜和地上所有的生物。”于是神就按照自己的形象创造人，就是照着神的形象创造他。他所创造的有男有女，神就赐福给他们，对他们说。要繁衍增增多，征服呃，充满这地，征服它等等的
在创世纪的这个一章的二十六到二十八节里面，在旧约圣经一开始就告诉我们神造人的目的：神按照自己的形象造人，让人来代表神来管理神所造的万物。创世纪第三章又告诉我们，罪恶让人变得不像神，人类就失去了代表神管理万物的权柄。所以。圣经在一开始就告诉我们，这是这个事情发生了。我们知道现在，啊、呃，我们作为人其实挺不容易的，啊、呃，细菌病毒可以让我们生病，人类的机体还会变异，有产生什么自身免疫疾病、癌症之类的，还有许多孩子一生下来就是瞎眼的、耳聋的、痴呆的，到了这个山林草原中间，你还有毒虫猛猛兽。海里面有鲨鱼，然后几个几十个中国同胞，好不容易有个假期到泰国去旅行一下，还赶上了暴风雨，把性命葬送在那里。我们现在和圣经所说的神给人的这种权柄是绝对不相吻合的。为什么？因为我们已经没有这个权柄了，人类没有这个治理万物、统治万物的这个权柄，所以我们是很软弱的。但是。圣经接下来的这些经文就告诉我们：虽然混乱和软弱是我们现实人的处境，但是神创造人的目的不是这样子。神创造人的目的是要让人来代表神去管理他的万物。所以整本圣经其实讲的是神一直在致力于恢复他创造人的目的。我们说是神差遣耶稣基督来拯救我们，是的，没有错。但是同时，圣经在告诉我们，神在恢复他创造人的目的。神创造人的目的就是来代表神来管理万物。因为这个目的，保罗在提摩太前书里面二章四节说：“神愿意所有人得救。”认识真理，神造人的目的并不是要毁灭他们，而是要代表神来管理万物。因为神这样的一个心意，所以神愿意所有人得救。但是，圣经告诉我们，罪恶、死亡以及撒旦的权势，拦阻人来实现神创造人的目的。所以，神就差遣耶稣基督来，逐个的解决这些问题：罪恶、死亡以及撒旦为首的黑暗的权势。在哥林多前书里面，在这里面，耶稣基督从死人中复活，耶稣的死，他解决了罪恶的问题。然后到了二十四节说，末期到了，基督要把所有的统治者、掌权者和有能者都毁灭了。这里是讲到黑暗的权势的问题。最后面末期，然后什么？最后二十六节，最后要毁灭的仇敌就是死亡。所以在这里面，《哥林多前书》里面讲的说，男主人作为神的创造物中间。能够代表他管理万物的这么一个目的的这些主要的因素，罪恶、死亡、撒旦的黑暗权势，都在这里被解决的。那对于我们中间还没有信主的朋友，我要呃对大家说，圣经这本书不是一个人写的，圣经这本书历经了一千五百年左右，约有四十个作者。四十个作者跨度一千五百年，写了一个完整的故事，完整的描述了一场拯救计划的成功实施
所以，圣经起初就告诉我们神创造人的目的，最后神要恢复人类被造的目的。那这些作者每个人写一点，这个作者写一点，那个作者写一点，最后能够拼凑成一幅完整的图画。那我要对大家说，相信神借着耶稣基督来拯救罪人是非常合理的，因为你想，一千五百年的跨度，四十多位作者要能够把一个。故事编的那么的完整，这不是，这不是一个很简单的事情。我们现在都在等候那个荣耀的日子。罗马书八章的十九到二十三节这样说：“被造的万物都热切渴望神的种子显现出来，被造的万物，所有的被造物都热切的渴望神的种子显现出来。”因为被造的万物浮在虚空之下，不是自己愿意这样，而是由于使他屈服的那一位。谁使他屈服？神。神使万物屈服在虚空之下。被造的万物盼望自己得到释放，脱离败坏的辖奴役，得着神儿女荣耀的自由。我们知道，被造的万物直到现在都一同在痛苦呻吟。不但这样，连我们这些有圣灵作为出熟果子的人。自己也在内心叹息，热切期待成为次子，就是我们的身体得赎。保罗在这里说，受造的万物都在等候神的众子们显现出来。所以，神的众子们就是那些相信耶稣基督的人。受造的万物都在等候我们复活得到荣耀的日子。当我们得到荣耀的那时候，神也更新万物。当人被复活的时候，神也更新万物。因为我们已经得到这个荣耀的身体了，我们完全恢复了神的形象，那可以真正代表神来行使权柄来管理这个万物。这时候万物神也把他们都更新了。在这以前，万物都浮在虚空之下。虚空这个词，它的原文的意思可以翻译作没有目的，也就是当人在罪恶、撒旦和死亡的这个权势之下，人不能代表神来管理。那人的作用就没有实现，万物被造的目的也没有实现，所以万物它浮在虚空之下，它是在无没有目的的状况之下。被造的万物渴望不再被败坏辖制，能够得到自由，就是神儿女的荣耀的自由。这个自由需要等到神的儿女们得到荣耀，也就是信徒们借着主耶稣的救赎，重新回到神的荣耀中间去。为什么开始讲到说神的荣耀？因为这个荣耀是神要给我们信徒的，这个荣耀是我们信徒将来盼望着说能够进入到神的荣耀里面去。在旧约的时候，神的选民能够看见一点神的荣耀，所以你在旧约读圣经的时候，你为什么总是发觉说没有一个人能够完完全看到神的荣耀，连哪怕是摩西，因为神的荣耀不是罪人能够完全看见的。现在，基督他已经进入了荣耀中，所有信他的人就在等候分享他的荣耀。基督他作为一个完全的人，一个没有罪的人，他进入了神的荣耀。我们就是去分享他的这个荣耀。那时，神创造人和万物的目的都将实现，人将要得到荣耀，万物将享受自由。所以。罗马书在这里面就告诉我们，为什么万物都在盼望
，不但万物在在等待，在盼望，我们这些因信耶稣基督得到圣灵内住的人，也在热切的期待成为世子。这个二十三节讲到世子，世子是呃一个新译版的翻译。这个世子，他给你注注射，就是我们的身体得赎。世子这个和合本的翻译叫什么呢？叫儿子的名分。你本来有一本来，某个人他没有父母或者有父母，然后呢，你把他领养了，成为你自己的孩子，就叫领养的儿子，他就得着了一个儿子的名分。那我们从相信的那一天起，其实我们已经得到这个儿子的名分了。从我们相信那天起，我们已经得到了，所以神就赐给我们他儿子的灵。我们呼求神为阿爸父。如果说神没有给你这个儿子的灵，你不会呼求他为阿爸父的。但是这个儿子的名分的完全实现，需要等到复活的日子。所以这里面为什么保罗他又讲到说儿子的名分？这个儿子的名分需要等到复活的日子才能完全实现，就是等到我们身体得到救赎的日子。我们现在呢，就像买房子，买房子我只付了一个首付，好像拿到了产权，因为我可以。住在里面，所以我想要的，我怎么样的安排都可以。但是因为我还向银行贷款了，所以我不是真正的拥有产权。照样，我们作为相信的人来说，我们已经有了圣灵，成为神的儿女，但是身体还没有得到救赎，我们还没有复活。我们的复活的日子就好像银行的贷款还完了，这套房子真的是属于你了。我们复活的日子，我们是真正的得到了神儿子的名分，所以我们现在在盼望中间，在盼望中间，对于信徒来说就非常重要的一点，就是需要他在盼望中有坚韧，在盼望中需要坚韧。上周我提过啊，帕斯卡的这个冒险理论，法国数学家帕斯卡把基督徒的信仰比作冒险。我们能否把基督信仰比作冒险，在于我们怎样理解冒险。你怎么样理解冒险？如果我们把冒险理解成怀疑最后有没有复活，我现在冒险，可能有可能没有，这不是一个正确的理解冒险。因为圣经里面记载，当耶稣基督面对十字架的，他的毅然决然。他的所有的教导，以及使徒的教导和他们传教的经历，这些都很清楚的告诉我们，神对世人的救赎，以及我们将来要得到的荣耀。圣经的记载不允许我们把这个冒险当做一种可能有可能没有，但是如果我们把冒险理解成为你信仰的过程可能很曲折，但是呢，你最终还是有惊无险的到达了终点。你可以这样理解冒险，因为跟随耶稣基督的这个过程是曲折和艰辛的。有人以为说我信耶稣是很简单的事情，我相信了。但其实，如果说大家跟随主耶稣一段时间以后，尤其是你希望成长的话，你会知道一点，这个跟随耶稣基督的过程是曲折和艰辛的。虽然过程是曲折和艰辛的，但是我知道说我最后面一定能够。有惊无险的到达终点。神学上有一个词叫“圣徒的坚韧”，圣徒的坚韧，这个他的意思是
圣灵在圣徒的心中不断的运行。这里首先讲到圣灵在圣徒的心中不断的运行，借此使那在信徒心中开始的神的恩典的工作，在信徒的心中开始了神的恩典的工作，得以持续下去，直到完成。坚忍是什么？神已经在我们的心里面开始了他恩典的工作。然后圣灵帮助我们得以持续下去，直到完成。在这里面讲到圣灵的工作，但是圣徒的坚韧，同时告诉我们，圣徒在这个过程中间，他需要顺服、配合圣灵的工作。圣灵一一定会愿意帮助我们坚韧，直到最后面到达终点。但是在这个过程中间，圣徒需要坚韧。圣徒仍然需要他的努力。神借着主耶稣的福音呼召我们，这个呼召就是要我们承受神儿子的名分，承受永生，承受神将要给我们的荣耀。神呼召我们做什么？他呼召我们就是要我们承受这个儿子的名分，承受永生，承受神将来要给我们的荣耀。整本圣经都非常强调这个词“荣耀”。从我们相信的那一天起，圣灵就在我们的心里面工作。当你相信的那一天开始，圣灵就在我们心里工作，让我们时常的思想和盼望将来的荣耀。如果没有这个盼望，没有这样的盼望，一个基督徒他怎么能够在这一生这样坚定的走下去呢？因为这样的盼望，这个基督徒他可以轻看今生的财富、名利、享乐和安逸，所以这个盼望是非常重要的。信徒的今生之所以能够跟着耶稣基督，就因为这个荣耀的盼望。正如保罗这样说：“我们的盼望在于永活的神，他是万人的救主，更是信徒的救主。我们的盼望在于永活的神。”他是万人的救主，更是信徒的救主。也许有人说：“我相信，但是我也有怀疑。”我相信，信徒将来会有荣耀，但是我也有怀疑。有没有？有没有人怀疑？还是大家都没有怀疑？让我说一个故事。在叙利亚有一个家庭，丈夫是珠宝商人。妻子在家里面照顾一个儿子一个女儿，这个家非常的富裕，因为丈夫是一个珠宝商人。但是呢，叙利亚的内战爆发了以后，丈夫就被谋杀了。他被不知道是哪一派的这个武装力量给谋杀了。妻子就带着儿子和女儿逃到邻国约旦，成为了难民。这个妻子她在逃难的路上。神的安排也非常的奇妙。他看到基督徒的宣教士被杀害，也就在他逃难的路上，他看到过这个宣教士被当地的穆斯林杀了，也看到过穆斯林因为改信耶稣被杀了，他都看到过。他是一个穆斯林，他到了约旦以后呢，他就去清真寺，但是他发觉约旦的这个清真寺的那些。人呐、啊，没有人愿意帮助他的，而且他们非常讨厌这叙利亚的难民，又来给我们惹麻烦。反倒是一些基督徒很热心的帮助他
，这些基督徒没有向他传教。我们以为说基督徒都传教，这些基督徒只帮助他没有传教。以后我等下会告诉你为什么没有传教。那时候他和女儿开始梦见耶稣，他在路上有很多的曲折的经历，但是在那个时候他开始梦见耶稣，也就是在他的梦里面，耶稣亲自的向他和他的女儿显现，在他们的梦里面。耶稣的眼睛流露着无限的爱，这是他自己说的。过了一段时间呢，这个女人她去找时常帮助她的一个基督徒的妇女。这个另外一个一一个女女女人是一个信主的基督徒，然后呢，她就去找他，她对他说：“我愿意相信耶稣。”那人就问他说：“你确认吗？”所以，所以我们说，我们在这里面就劝人说：“哎，赶紧信耶稣，信耶稣。”在那里的时候，人对一个基督徒对他说：“你确认吗？你真的想要信吗？”为什么他这样问呢？他说：“你看到过穆斯林杀害基督徒？你看到过穆斯林杀害基督徒传教士？你也有可能因为信耶稣失去生命的。你真的要相信耶稣吗？也就是你这个决定是生或者死的决定。”你可能会因为你这个决定而失去你的生命的。然后他回答说：“我想清楚了，我愿意。我想清楚了，就算我为我改信耶稣失去生命，我也愿意。为什么这个叙利亚女人明知道有生命危险，她还要相信耶稣？因为她知道耶稣才是唯一的救主，耶稣就是神。对于我们来说，我们没有看到过。”很多人，我相信很多人都没有看，可能都没有经历过神迹，也可能没有看过异象，没有看没有做过梦，所以我们可能没有这么大的信心。但是呢，我们也要知道一点，我们不是穆斯林。为什么？我们在信仰中间所面临的挑战和难度没有那么大，他们可能时刻会为信耶稣丢掉性命的，我们不会的。至少在这里，现在不会。所以，对他们来说，神因为他极大的恩典，他给他们经历这些东西来兼顾他们的信心。在我们身上，也许神不会用神迹、用这些梦、用意象来满足我们的好奇心。在主耶稣的比喻里面，亚伯拉罕对财主说：“如果你的兄弟不信摩西和先知，就算死人复活，他们也不会信的。”意思是什么？意思是神已经给了我们圣经。如果我们的不信、怀疑、小信是因为我们的懒惰，那责任就在我们自己了，不在于神。对于我们这些没有像他们经历那样的大的征战、冲突、患难的人，神给了我们圣经。圣经可以给我们信心。所以我最后要总结一下：世人都知道皇帝的尊贵，但是呢，如果大家看过皇帝的历史剧，你知道皇帝的日子是不好过的。皇帝的日子是很不好过的，要防着暗杀，妃嫔们要争宠，儿子们要夺储君之位，大臣们要谋反，百姓们要造反，贪污腐败，各种各样的事情。皇帝谁都想做，但其实皇帝的位置是极不好做的。在世界上
，因为罪恶的问题，没有人的日子是好过的，没有人的日子是绝对好过的。但是呢，我们有一个非常好的消息，我们的神是一位伟大的神，他做的救赎的工作也是一个伟大的工作，他使耶稣基督复活，将来也要使我们复活。信徒的复活完成了神创造人的目的，也完成了耶稣基督救赎的目的。神造人的目的一定要在救赎，在一定要在复活才能够实现。耶稣基督救赎的目的也一定要在复活才能实现。我们现在都还只是半成品而已，所以让我们热切的期待身体得到。救赎的那一天，所以保罗在这里说：“我们自己也在内心叹息，热切期待成为世子，就是我们的身体得赎。那时候没有罪恶，没有死亡，没有仇敌，没有罪恶，没有死亡，没有仇敌。所以启示录经文这样说：耶稣，我愿你来。”耶稣，我愿你来，阿门。